chapter number one. We're going to begin uh, tonight with just kind of an intro. Uh, probably won't be too long, but you know me, right? So don't hold me to that. But uh, you, want, you want it extra long? Okay. Um, going to give you an introduction to this book tonight, and then we'll start in, uh, should start in next week, kind of into verse by verse. Uh, but what I want to say is this before we even start we're Bible believers. Okay? So what that means is, that means we believe the Bible, every word of the Bible. Um, I believe that this book is inerrant, it's infallible, it's inspired. Uh, One of the tricks of people that don't believe the Bible is they'll pick parts of the Bible that they don't understand and they'll try to make it an allegory or they'll try to say that it's figurative or something like that. Revelation's not figurative. Um, I want you to know that Revelation's really not hard. Everybody thinks it's hard. Uh, Revelation is not hard to understand, and I put that at the top, which I realize most of you cannot read that. But Revelation is not hard to understand. It's hard to believe. Okay? But there's nothing that you're going to read that's actually like, I wonder what that actually means. I mean, it's very descriptive, uh, and it spells things out for you pretty clearly. The thing about the book of Revelation is, is that it's, it's not easy, right? I wouldn't say this is an easy book of the Bible. Uh, it, it's pretty detailed. Uh, it's pretty difficult. If you don't know what it means to rightly divide the word of truth, you can forget it. Because uh, you're going to be so lost by the time you get into this book, you just throw up your hands in despair and just completely give up. But I believe the Bible, and I believe every word of the Bible. And I believe Revelation means what it says and says what it means, so we're going to look into that. Now, there are some tough spots, okay? We're going to run into some problems. You don't actually get three chapters in without running into some problems, and we'll deal with some of that tonight just kind of as an overview. But before we go any further, I would just like to stop and pray if we could, and then uh, we'll pick it up from here. Father, I love you tonight. I thank you, Lord, for church. I thank you for your people. Thank you for your book. Uh, God, what an amazing book the Bible is, and and I love this book, God, and I'm thankful for it. And Father, I need your filling and your guiding in order to teach this Bible in such a way that will help your people, uh, and Lord, not appeal to our heads, but apply to our hearts. As we go through this book, Lord, and as we look at the doctrine, and as we kind of study these things, I pray that we would constantly be getting some practical application to our daily lives, that you would help me as a pastor not to fail to... Uh, strive to hit the heart, not just the head. And I pray, Father, you would teach us. I pray that you would make these things clear to us. I pray that you would give us the extra blessing that comes from this revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's a great book. We want that blessing. But I pray that that blessing would not just apply to our heads and to our doctrine, but that it would apply to our hearts and that we would be better, more serious, more devoted Christians in the day and age that we live in. As a result of the studies, as we go through this book, guide us and direct us now, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which shall shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So right out of the gate, notice this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, One thing that's extremely important to understand is when this book was written. He shows you who the author is, and we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. But before we get into that, I want you to understand the date of the writing of this is between 91 A.D. and 96 A.D. That is extremely important, and here's why. 
Okay, that might not seem like an important point to make, but it's very important. And the reason that's important is because this puts us, this writing puts us during the second great persecution of Christians under Domitian. Okay, that's important because the Roman Catholic Church claims this thing was written under Nero in the 70s. The reason that the Roman Catholic Church wants you to think Revelation was written earlier than 91 to 96 is because if it was written around 70 A.D., that would bring you back before Domitian under Nero. That, play, that would place it before the destruction of Jerusalem, thereby claiming the events in Revelation were fulfilled already when Jerusalem was destroyed by Nero. Does that make sense so far? You see how tricky that is? Before you even start getting into verse by verse, they're already attacking the Bible. And coincidentally, I'll just tell you this, I didn't write it all down, but that belief system, that teaching came from some old, I think they're old Syriac uh, uh, translations. It didn't even come from a Greek text. So the Greek texts that underlie the King James Bible never taught that. But some false manuscripts that were out there that weren't even a part of what we would accept as the canon of Scripture or the Scriptures that backed up the King James Bible, that's where the Roman Catholic Church gets that from, some false manuscripts. So you already, before you even start into verse chapter 1, verse 1, you already have the battle of the true Bible versus the false Bibles running all the way back. Ain't that wild? Satan wastes no time whatsoever trying to come in and muddy up the truth to keep you from coming to know what God wants you to know from the Bible. And so what they, the reason, the motive behind them getting you to think that this took place under Nero is that if these events were already fulfilled when Jerusalem was later destroyed, they can disguise their own identity in Revelation 17 and 18, which we'll get to. Because what that would mean in that case, if this was written earlier than 91 to 96 by the Apostle John, what that would mean is Revelation 17 and 18 is referring to pagan Rome, not papal Rome. You know what papal Rome is, right? It's the Vatican. It's the Roman Catholic Church. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to, they're trying to switch it up. Well, that was pagan Rome. That's not us. When the fact of the matter is, is that the Roman Catholic Church in 17 and 18, that is, that is papal Rome. That is currently the Rome that's over there right now, the city on seven hills. That's that woman drunken with the blood of the saints, which we'll get to as we go through the book. That is the Roman Catholic Church. But they don't want you to know that. So what they immediately do is they begin attacking it right out of the gate. Now, you can't see this. I realize it. But here's what they will teach you, okay? Like not just Roman Catholic Church, but what... You know, all the cults will teach you. Because when, when it comes to any of them, the JWs, uh, the Christadelphians, the Roman Catholics, any of them, not one of them knows how to explain to you the book of Revelation. So what they'll start telling you is, th these aren't literal, this is figurative. And this actually could be, and what that actually could be is helicopters, and that actually could be a bomb. And they start trying to make everything sort of an allegory and figurative because they don't like the harsh realities of what it actually says. So what they'll say is, Revelation is hidden, it's veiled, it's apocalyptic. That's a big word nowadays, isn't it interesting how that's become this big word? Apocalyptic. It's secret. I got here in all caps that I realize most of you can't see, not so. You know what God said? Before you even start, before you even start chapter 1, verse 1, you should look at your Bible right there. It's the what? 
So is that hidden? Secret? Figurative? Apocalyptic? It's revealed. That is the opposite. If you think about the definition of revealing something, that is the opposite of hidden and figurative and, you know, we think this could mean an allegorical and all embedded and encoded and something else is being said and this actually means something. No, it is revealed. In other words, folks, when we go into Revelation, God is telling us exactly what he wants us to know and it's not a trick. There's nothing to twist. There's nothing to change. There's nothing to figure out what that means. Rightly divide the word of truth and believe the Bible because we're Bible believers and this thing's going to make sense to you. Where other people sit around and scratch their heads and try to figure it out and argue and debate, we know God said it's revealed by the way God named the book. The revelation. So where do we get this whole encoding deal, hidden deal, veiled deal, apocalyptic? That, that's, that's somebody, somebody is teaching a Bible they don't like. Because something about that book is saying something they don't want to hear. Okay, just making sure we're good. Here, I'll help you out. I'll stop messing with you and I'll help you out. Better? Nope. I'll take care of it. Well, he was coming after me, man. I was like, oh my goodness, we're not even getting into Revelation yet. It's not working, John. I don't know what to tell you, brother. No, I don't yet. I've got to keep cranking here. It'll break. <laughs> All right, so number two. The apostle, right, I told you it'd break, didn't I? It just did. Uh, the, the author is the Apostle John. I think it just skipped. I don't think it broke. Uh, the author is the Apostle John. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 2. This is another one. I, I'm not sure why they don't want it to be him. Uh, maybe undermining the authority. I get it? Okay. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. So they'll try to tell you this could have been the elder John or the presbyter John, but not the Apostle John. Look at verse 2. Who bear record of the word of God. Hey, there was, there was some apostles that bore record, right? And of the testimony of Jesus Christ, now watch it, and of all the things that he, you know what an apostle had to be? Somebody that saw the Lord. You know who, what chapter 1, verse 2 tells you who the author is. So you don't have to take some historian's word for it when they want to twist it around. Some theologian's word for who the author of the, God, of the book of Revelation is. Oh, that's not John the apostle. Yes, it is. Now, here's also why that's important to you. That's important to you because we're going to see some things in here that are kind of a little bit of a head-scratcher when it comes to doctrine. John gets this writing between 91 and 96 A.D. when the Pauline doctrine was thoroughly revealed and thoroughly understood. So keep that in the back of your head, and we'll get back to that in a minute. There's three applications of all Scripture, including the book of Revelation. Number one, historical. Okay? So this is important to understand if you're going to understand chapters 2 and 3. There's a historical application to every passage of Scripture in your Bible. This book you hold in your hand has a history to it. So historically speaking, John is writing to churches that existed at that time on the planet. Okay? Now, Now stay with me on that thought. There's always a historical application. That means... It happened in history as it is stated. So when you're reading your Bible, when you're reading the stories, 
that perfect book in your lap, you're guaranteed that what God said happened, happened. It happened as it was stated. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos. This is historical. This is a historical fact. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute, and I'll show you what that is, but just mark this down in your mind, in your notes, whatever. Understand this, that the Lord's Day, or the Day of the Lord, is always a reference to the second advent. Okay? The Day of the Lord is always a reference to the second advent. Look back at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now, if you read commentators, they're going to say he was in the Spirit on a Sunday morning. You know, I mean, the the Pentecostals are going to be like, he was in the Spirit, he was speaking in tongues, he was in the Spirit on a Sunday morning. Uh, The Lord's Day is not Sunday morning. We gather on that day, it's the first day of the week. It is the day that the Lord rose from the dead, that's why we gather on Sunday. But the Lord's Day is the second advent. So historically speaking... John's in exile on the Isle of Patmos, right? God catches him up in the spirit and pulls him off into the future. And when he's sitting here writing and has a revelation, he's writing it from the time when Jesus Christ is coming back to set up his kingdom on the earth. So he's sitting up there in eternity. He's up there in the future. And he's writing from that perspective. That's wild, ain't it? Well, I mean, God did the same thing with Paul. God called Paul up into the third heaven and taught him some things that were not lawful for man to utter. God does the same thing with John. And he's given him this book for us. So historically, you've got to understand, and it's important, it's going to be really important to grab a hold of that as you read the writing. Uh, By the way, just so you know, a couple other ways you know it was John is the writing is similar to John's Gospels and the first, second, third John. There's other little hints you get. It's definitely the Apostle John. All right, number two, application to Scripture, historical. Number two is doctrinal, okay? Every verse in the Bible is aimed at a specific person for a specific purpose to teach a specific truth. Did you follow that? Don't worry, I won't erase this right away for those of you that are taking notes, and if you want to keep up, you can take a picture of it or whatever you need. It's aimed at a specific person For instance, God does not tell you to bring a lamb in here and slaughter the lamb, right? Are there not verses of the Bible that say that? So doctrinally speaking, every verse is aimed at a specific person for a specific purpose to teach a specific truth. So you've got to understand when it comes to rightly dividing, we, we not just believe the Bible, but we rightly divide the word of truth because that's the only way to keep believing the Bible, (laughs) If you don't rightly divide the word of truth, the Bible's a mess. The Bible corrects itself. You don't know what to believe anymore. So we rightly divide the word of truth because we believe the Bible and we're going to keep believing the Bible. And the Bible says to rightly divide the Bible. And when we rightly divide the Bible, the Bible begins to make sense and we don't have to change a thing about the Bible. Follow that, right? It's easy. It's really easy. So there's specific things being taught. When we read the book of Revelation, and I'm going to show you these passages, we're going to turn to them together in just a minute. There's some doctrinal things in here that do not apply to you whatsoever. 
doctrinally, we got to know who John was aiming at when he wrote some of these verses. The third application for all Scripture is inspirational. This is uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be thir- perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Uh, those things which are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, right? So everything in your Bible, there's a spiritual application for correction and instruction in righteousness. So you can get a lot of help from Revelation. I mean a lot. You read through Revelation and see what the devil does to the world when he's off leash. It'll start making you think a couple times before you start messing around with drugs and with alcohol and with fornication and pornography and all the rest of the stuff that's out there. You'll think a time or two before you start messing around on the devil's playground. Now, this book, this book will shake you up a little bit, and, and it's an exciting book. People love getting into Revelation, man. I mean, just love it. And I don't think that's wrong, by the way. I think you should be excited about it. I think it is interesting. There's something, it's an amazing thing. When these, when these JWs want to pump up their attendance and get a bunch of recruits, you know what they do? They put out on these highways, they put these crazy signs out about studies in Revelation, and they get the beast and all the rest of that stuff on there, and they get people coming, boy. You ever notice the pamphlets they hand you? Why is it people are so obsessed with that? As a Christian, you ought to be, yes, for sure. You ought to be excited about knowing what God's going to do <laughs> and hoping it's going to start happening soon. Uh, it's exciting stuff, but it'll encourage you. It'll help you. So there's three applications to Scripture. Now let's get into a little bit of this here, and hopefully it'll be a help to you. Here's one thing that you got to... Is that, is that good, John? Okay. So we're going we're gonna to dive into that chart on the, up in that upper right-hand corner there in just a minute. But there's three different views of eschatology, which is end times things, all right? The first view is a post-millennialist view. The post-millennialist believes that Jesus, and I didn't finish his name, my word, look at that. How horrible. You probably can't see it from where you are, but i got to fix it now that I saw it. It's bugging me. Oh, man, it's a dry marker. All right, well, the Lord knows. Uh, Jesus Christ is coming after the thousand years. That's a post-millennialist. So they don't believe he's coming in to set up his kingdom. They believe he's coming at the end. An amillennialist believes Jesus Christ is not coming to reign. There's no thousand-year reign on the earth. So I I literally just looked this up just to double-check, and I I found a Catholic website, and they said this. They believe, the Roman Catholic Church believes, that Jesus Christ is reigning right now in heaven. He's seated on the throne in heaven, and his church is reigning on earth. So they would say the millennium is a figurative thing that's not necessarily a time frame. But that's not true at all. When you study the Bible, the millennium is a thousand-year reign. It's a time frame. It's absolutely 100% clear that it's a time period. It's a 1,000 years. A mill is a thousand, annum is year. It's a 1,000-year period of time. So they don't believe Jesus Christ is coming to reign at all. They believe he's reigning in heaven and they're the representative on earth. So if you believe that, how in the world are you going to make any sense out of the book of Revelation at all? You're not. If you're a post-millennialist, you have absolutely no clue how to figure out the book of Revelation at all. The only way to truly understand the book of Revelation is to be a premillennialist, which is what we are. We are born again, King James Bible believing, 
And we believe in rightly dividing the word of truth. We're dispensational and we're premillennial. That means Jesus Christ is coming back before the 1,000 year reign to set up his kingdom on this earth and rule and reign for 1,000 years on this earth, right? Look at Revelation chapter number 20. Look at verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. See it? That's a millennium. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. See it? And the rest of the, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Of such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. See it again? And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. All right, we'll get to that as we get to the revelation. Now look at this. Here's how this is going to break down, okay? So we're going to get to the doctrinal teachings in Revelation, and that's where we're going to spend just a few minutes tonight, and then we'll be done for tonight. First of all, this chart is very, very important, although extremely simple. It's not hard to understand. But this chart will help you, not just with all of your Bible, but with specifically with the book of Revelation. The line here is obviously the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, right? You see the crosses? Your Old Testament's leading up to that point. Christ goes up, right? He ascends. The church age is where we're at right now. Our doctrine is Pauline doctrine. Paul's the one that teaches us that we can't lose our salvation, right? If you're going to take the book of Revelation and you're going to break that thing out to see what God's teaching. Now, don't forget this. Doctrinally, doctrinally, Revelation 1 through 3 is not here. So you have the church age here, right? And then you have the tribulation. Somebody goes up here. Okay? Somebody comes down here. This is the Lord's day when Jesus Christ comes back. Doctrinally, the church's teaching is Paul. Spiritual application in chapters 1, 2, and 3 are letters to seven churches. When we look at those in just a minute, you're going to see, though, doctrinally, it doesn't line up 100%. So God, the way your Bible's written is so amazing, right? Like, like the order of the books in the Old Testament. Like, why did he lay them out like this? Because as, as I've been showing you on Sunday morning, this thing's not even laid out like chronologically in order. It's not like, you know, the Bible runs, those Old Testament books run according to the dates. Because we just read Esther, which was the oldest one. It's running all the way up there to the end, chronologically. But it's fallen back. I mean, like, what in the world? So God give you the Bible... And while he's giving you the Bible and giving you all this doctrine, there's, there's layers to it. You've got a historical application, a spiritual application, a doctrinal application, and you've got a prophetic application. 
The order of the books in your Old Testament show a premillennial order. They picture things. They picture a rapture of a church, a tribulation period in Job, a second coming of Jesus Christ, the restitution of Israel. They picture those things in the way the order of the books in a King James Bible is laid out. God does the same thing in Revelation. So while doctrinally you got him writing to churches in the tribulation period, and you'll see in a second it doesn't line up 100%, he's also got it laid out to where prophetically you can see that God has a plan for the church. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, look at it. The church to go up. I'll show it to you. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Heaven's opened. Heaven's only opened two times in the book of Revelation. It's open in Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet calling to me, and which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. You know when that happens, Revelation 4, 1? It happens right after Revelation chapter 3. What's the last church in Revelation chapter 3? It's Laodicea. It's I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and don't know you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. It's one of the only church, I think it's the only church mentioned that has a building. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You go down through church history and you look at, very few of them had it like we have it. So there's a picture there. So Revelation chapter 1 through 3 would fall here in a spiritual application only. Then you got Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. There's a division in the book of Revelation and there's a door opened in heaven and somebody goes up. Go over to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Heaven's opened a second time in Revelation, only twice. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he just judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. You know what that is? That's the second advent. That's the day of the Lord. You know what he's doing? He's coming back to set up his kingdom. And then we already read 20 verses 1 through 7, but that's Armageddon. So heaven's opened here. Somebody goes up. Heaven's opened here, somebody comes down. You see that? At the beginning of the tribulation period, chapters 4 through 19 show you the tribulation period. At the beginning of the tribulation period, we go up. At the end of the tribulation period, Revelation 19, 11, heaven's open, we come down with him, he comes back, that's the second advent. He was called up in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He's sitting right here somewhere watching all this stuff happen and writing. And then after Revelation 19, starting in Revelation 20, you got the millennial reign and off into eternity future. That's how the book's divided out. Now, look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 again. I want you to understand something that literally, this one troubled me for a long time and I must, must be simple-minded or something, but it troubled me for a long time because I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm like, I'm recognizing that he's writing to, to seven literal churches that existed at that time and at that time they're under Pauline doctrine, right? So how is John writing a message that doesn't match Paul when Pauline doctrine is firmly established? Does that, 
Does that, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I, don't, I don't struggle with that in Hebrews because that was written earlier, right? It's like, okay, that, that's the argument you can make is Hebrews was written earlier. And Hebrews is obviously tribulation because there's talk in Hebrews about losing your salvation. Oh, Matthew, you can argue he was, it was written earlier. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. He's copying down what Jesus said. Jesus was preaching toward the tribulation. Okay, I get But Revelation, this one was written late. Here, here's, the, here's the simplicity of the answer. Has anybody else had that struggle? And that, that kind of trip you up a little bit? Watch the simplicity of the answer. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Well, back it up to, back it up to 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Okay? So John's writing two literal churches in Asia at the time. Grace be unto you in peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. We'll get to all that next week. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now watch it. And hath made us, Kings and priests unto God and His Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what he just said? Half made us what? Go to Second Timothy chapter 2. Did you see how he put it a past tense and made an assumptive close on it that they already understood what they are? Does that click? Do you understand what I'm driving at? I'll try to explain it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Verse 11. It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful, He cannot deny Himself. You know what John said in Revelation 1, 6? And hath past tense made us already. It looks to me like the doctrine was so well established, Paul's letters were so given, and John was backing up what Paul had already said and said, you guys know what we already are. He hath made us kings and priests. It's almost as though he's telling them, now listen, God called me up into the future to show me something for the future. Do do you follow that? But he's reiterating the doctrine that Paul taught. Because it's a past tense, he hath made us already in this church age, churches I'm writing to, you know what we are, we're kings and priests. Well, well that, that's only promised after the fact. Okay? So look at verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. He's telling them something coming in the future. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, who was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me the great voices of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. So what he's doing is he's telling them, hey, you guys, you know what God made us, but I'm just here to tell you, I'm your brother and all the rest of that, but God called me up into the future to give me some instructions for the future. So what I'm trying to tell you is, the churches he was writing to should understand 
the prophetic implications of what he's writing because he made that clear when he wrote it. Is that making sense? So if their doctrine was already established and they already had Paul's doctrine, there shouldn't have been any confusion with them any more than there should be with you and me, yet there still is, isn't there? Isn't that weird? I mean, you know how many churches go to these these passages in Revelation and just get all tripped up about whether or not you can keep your salvation or God's going to blot your name out of the book and all the rest of that stuff? And I got more to show you on the book, but we're not going to make it to that tonight. But there's more than one book. We'll get to it when we go through Revelation. There's more than one book that God's got in heaven. And we'll, we'll dice them up. We'll look at the different books there in the Bible. They're pretty clear. All right, so I want you to know that what we're dealing with here doctrinally is to the tribulation, to the uh, millennium, and then to eternity future. Go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. So I think he makes it clear to them what they are. He used the past tense and he nails it down. But when you look at uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Where do you find that instruction given by Paul to the church? What does the tree of life and eating from the tree of life have to do with your salvation? Is that even possible for anybody here to eat from the tree of life? Yeah. See, doctrinally, that's not to you. Doctrinally, that has to be to somebody else because it doesn't line up with Paul at all. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Him that overcometh, right? Well, this is John writing, isn't it? We'll look at 1 John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know what you've already done? You've already overcome. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Not enduring to the end, not keeping his promises. Not doing all the stuff he tells the churches in Revelation to do. You overcome the world by your faith. This is the victory that come, overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? How do you overcome? Believing Jesus. Believe Jesus is the Son of God. That's it. That's all you got to do to overcome. So Revelation 2.7 can't be to you. Doctrinally. Look at Revelation 2 verse 26, I think it is. Yeah, 2.26. It can't be to you. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. So how do these guys overcome? They got to keep his works unto the end. Now, we don't have time, but if you go over to Matthew 24 and all the rest of that, you, you know what it is clear the end is? It is 100% clear that the end is the end of the tribulation. It is not the end of your life. It's not the end of that. The end is keeping his works unto the end is hanging in there till the end of the tribulation. And if you hang in there till the end of the tribulation, you overcome and you have a right. That ain't to you. And folks, the seven churches in Asia knew that already. They had already gotten all of Paul's writings. They had already gotten John's writings that told them you've already overcome. Paul's writings that told you if you suffer, you're going to reign with him. And then he says, hey, guess what, guys, in verse number six, we're kings and priests, aren't we? 
All right, so God called me up into the future, and God's given me a different perspective about some stuff coming in the future, and so I want you to know this. You've got to write this stuff down. There's definitely a spiritual application to them, just like there will be to you and I as we go through those seven churches. There's a spiritual application, and what's super cool is it's, it's, it's miraculous. When you watch those seven churches, folks, this is miraculous. They're written to seven actual churches in history in Asia, They're written to future churches in the tribulation period. But when you study those seven churches and you look at church history over the last 2,000 years, those seven churches line up so obviously that history as it unfolded with wicked, abominable Gentiles that hated God and hated the Bible and were doing nothing more than just trying to dominate the world and stamp out Christianity and, and fight for their religion and the Catholic Church trying to get more and more territory and more and more ground and more and more money all the time. They're playing out throughout history what Revelations 2 and 3 tell you the church periods can be seen broken down there. That is the power of the book in your lap. God gives you a special blessing for reading the book of Revelation itself. The devil shows up right away and wants to stop you from even being able to grasp what is being taught. When you start grasping what is taught, he then tries to start messing with your mind about the doctrine. Well, how could it be? And I've had the same struggle, so I'm not knocking you for that struggle. But he starts trying to mess your mind up about the doctrine. So then you've got Bible-believing Pentecostals and apostolics and all the rest of that, and some of them are even King James Bible believers that think you can lose your salvation because when they look at Paul's writings, then they look at Revelation 2 and 3, and they look at Hebrews, and they look at Matthew, and they start trying to put this stuff together. They just mix them up. Well, that's not what that means. Well, it's what it says. Look at another one. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I will get to that another time, but he's talking about blotting his name out of the book of life. That's not, that's, that's, that's not you. You don't have to worry about your name getting blotted out, out of the book of life. You know, you know what's a really interesting one? Look at this. Um, where is it? Um, verse 16. Revelation 3.16, So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Wait a second. You know what God would have to do with you in order to spew you out of his mouth? Yeah. He'd have to cut the mouth out. You know why? You know why, don't you? I don't have to, we don't have to run the references on it. You know why. You are his body. You're his flesh and your bone, of his bones. You're him. You're one with him. You're not just something in his stomach that's making him want to vomit. You're not just something in his mouth he wants to spit out. That can't be you. That's not the bride of Jesus Christ. So you've got to understand doctrinally this stuff is not to us. So I already showed you the three parts of Revelation that I got down here at the bottom, and I already showed you God opens up heaven twice. Once somebody goes up, another time somebody comes down. Here's the neat thing, and, and we'll, we'll close here. The neat thing is this. Revelation chapter 4 That shows you when it's going to happen. When are we going up? You know what I like about this? We are going up before the tribulation period starts. Man, that is a blessing. Now, now Revelation will help you really grab a hold of that. Because when you look at some of the other passages, you're kind of like, it's kind of like you can see it there, but it's kind of tough, right, to like 
see, behold, I show you a... So it's, it's revealed, but it's kind of through a glass darkly. But when you get over to the book of Revelation, to me, I think it makes all the other passages that we see just come wide open. Because the way God laid this out, chapters 2 and 3, dealing with all the churches, chapter 4, a door opens in heaven, come up, somebody goes up. So Revelation shows you when it's going to happen. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't give us the date. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know that? Man, would I ever like to know that. And the frustrating thing to me is, I personally very strongly believe, and I don't have time to even get into the ins and outs of it, because it's a debate that could go on forever. But I strongly believe we could be uh, 50 to 300 years off. And you gotta, you got to understand the difference between the calendars and how they've changed them over time and how our calendars changed with the dates, because there's 31 here and the Jewish calendar don't run that way. And the Greek calendar, it, it's all messed up. It's all messed up so bad, this actually might not be 2022. It actually could be 1822, believe it or not. When you run 2,000 years of time and you run them off, you run the dates off the way we mix up our dates. So to us, it's 2022, but it might not be to God. That's a bummer, ain't it? But maybe we're on borrowed time. (laughs) Maybe we're we're 10 years off the wrong way. Maybe it's 2032. That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? But we don't know for sure. And the thing's so muddied up and, and all this stuff's been so messed with for so long that really, I mean, really all you got in your, in your lap today that you can be guaranteed of is this right here. Because God had to preserve it. So all the rest of that stuff, can I just tell you, before you get obsessed with YouTubing this stuff and diving into it and trying to figure it out, all of it's honestly pretty pointless. Don't, don't, don't waste your time trying to see if you can find something nobody else has found. Just, just stay in your Bible, love Jesus, walk with Him, love your family, do right, love your church, please the Lord, be a witness, live right, pray, read your Bible, come to church, and let's just live like He's coming back tonight because I truly believe He could call us out tonight. And I also think I could die of old age and so could my kids and I hate to think what that would mean. I hate to think what that would mean for my grandkids. I mean, I hate to think what that would mean. Alright, so this tells you when it's going to happen. First Thessalonians 4 tells you how. The Lord Himself is going to descend, right? And 1 Corinthians 15 tells you what's going to happen. Look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll stop right here. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet, talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things that must be hereafter. And immediately... I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Immediately. When the Lord blows that trumpet, guess what? It's not going to be like some wild carnival ride. I don't think, you know, not, not, not carnival, uh, what's this, uh, theme park things? Yeah, roller coaster, museum. Ah, we're going up, we're going up. It's, bam, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. I mean, just like that. Absent from this body would be great, wouldn't it? And present with the Lord. So that's, going to show, that, that's, that's what'll happen. And man, that'll be good. You're not going to have, you kids, listen, you're not going to have time to sit around and get scared. You're not going to have time to wonder. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I got freaked out a lot because, man, some of the old time preachers, they had something on them. 
I mean, something when they preach about the rapture, <laughs> you went home scared, man. <laughs> if the house got too quiet, I remember more than once the house getting too quiet. Or where's mom and dad? Like I was like, oh no, the rapture happened and I got left behind. You know, I mean, literally that happened more than once. Because boy, something about that when the guy, I, I don't know what the, those old guys had something, man. That's something I want. What a blessing. But listen, kids, you don't have to get all scared about that. It is normal for you kids to feel like, listen, it's not spiritual, okay? It's not right. It's, it's bad, terrible, but it's normal for you to say, Dad, I, is it bad that I really don't want the rapture to happen? I kind of would like to get married and have kids. and all. That's normal. But I do want to just comfort your heart that if it happens... If you're saved, if you're born again, you do not have to fear it. You don't have to worry about it. You're not going to be some kind of torture chamber flying out through outer space with you know demons chasing you, trying to get you one last time before you make it to Jesus. It's going to be just like that. You're there. And you're before the Lord. And you're really not going to really want to come back once you get there. You're going to want nothing to do with what you left back here. All right, so that gave us a little bit of an introduction to the book of Revelation. Uh, As you know, we're going to believe what we're reading. We're not going to twist it. We're not going to change it. We're going to understand when we run into doctrinal issues as we go through here. I'll show you how some of this stuff lines up with history, just to show you how powerful that book is. But also remember in that doctrinally, it says it to us, this is doctrinally of somebody in the future. And the one thing, I hope it helps some of you that kind of always wondered, like, how did that work? In verse number 6, he made it clear to them that what they already are, But then as he goes through those churches, he says, you guys need to try so you don't lose, so hopefully you can. But in verse 6 in chapter 1, the churches he's writing directly to before he's telling them the vision he had, he's saying, you guys know what you are. So their doctrine, historically, they should have understood that wasn't their doctrine. That was a prophecy. Making sense? All right, let's go ahead. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer.